It's National Happy Holidays to everyone from Jell-O Week. Tell everybody you know. And don't, don't, don't let the week go by without J-E-L-L-O. And happy holidays from Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard Award-winning food writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Series Seeds Chicago, and other publications all covered with sprinkles. Step into the library. This is the book edition, just in time for your holiday shopping. Ina Pinckney of Ina's collects recipes from her 33 years in the business in her book Taste Memories. I sat down to breakfast, what else, with her. The great Daniel Belude celebrates 20 years of his three-star Daniel in New York in his new cookbook, Daniel, My French Cuisine. But we wind up talking about where to get custard in Milwaukee instead. Then I chat with his friend, Chef Paul Bartolotta, who tells me what he's really like. Street Food Around the World is a huge new reference book with many Chicago authors, and I spoke with one of its two editors, Dr. Bruce Craig. That made me hungry, so then I spoke to a street food entrepreneur, Brendan O'Connor of Big Guy Sausage Stand in Berwyn. That's all in Episode 7 of Airwaves Full of Bacon, where the only food book we don't want to read is anything about Hunger Games. So if you read what I write for the Chicago Reader, some of the guests this time will sound kind of familiar. These recordings are what I made originally to then do print, or rather blogged, interviews. But a lot of it will be parts of those interviews that you didn't read. There's always stuff that doesn't make it into print for one reason or another. So that will be different. And it's also different just to actually hear the person in their own voice. Their personalities come through in a totally different way than in cold type. As with my first guest, who has no shortage of personality. Ina Pinckney of Ina's Restaurant on Randolph Street has given a number of interviews about her impending retirement at the end of 2013. But she invited me to breakfast to talk about something different. She'd heard the previous episode's interview with Liz and Mark Mendez, talking frankly about their two years running Vera. And she wanted to share her own thoughts about being in the business for a little longer than that. 33 years, to be precise. Along the way, I learned something really interesting about how kitchens really work, a Mexican method of saving money called a tondo. But first we sat down to breakfast in the back of her restaurant on a busy morning. They're all busy, now that she's closing. So we're here with, with Ina at a back booth in a full house. Full house. Uh, apparently nothing is as good for business as announcing that you're leaving it. Someone should just open a restaurant that on opening day says, we're closing in six months, better hurry. Oh, the name of the restaurant could be going out of business. Going out of business. Okay, we'll give you six more months. Oh, yeah, right, right, six more. That's it. That's it. We've extended the run. Yeah. Actually, I guess that was sort of Great Lake Pizza, but anyway. Um, so... How is, how is closing? How was 33 years? Closing is um, a, a remarkable in two ways. Um, it's very emotional with the customers I've been feeding for a very long time who come in with memories of 
of times here and things that happened here that I couldn't know about. Um, we had a woman come in with a, and, and really just get very teary. She says, I brought my granddaughter here, and my granddaughter had just come from American Girl and would not let go of the doll, and we wanted her to eat, but she wouldn't let go of the doll. And your server saw the whole dynamic of what was going on at the table and brought a high chair and put it next to my granddaughter and picked the doll up from her arms and put it in the high chair so that the little girl would eat. Now, I didn't know that happened, but that was the right thing. And to know that my service staff was that sensitive and thoughtful was very moving for me. So I'm learning all kinds of things that I didn't know. You're busier than ever. How How's the process of winding down? The process of winding down is actually a process of gearing up to take care of these people. I don't think I've ever worked this hard before. Um, we are busy from opening to closing. We recommend reservations. Uh, without them, there's a long wait. I've never seen crowds like this, ever. Um, it's quite wonderful because every restaurant owner should have the opportunity to go out debt neutral. Um, I know some have closed and left vendors high and dry and left big bills behind them as they left town. I know restaurants that have closed, just people show up to work, there's a sign on the door, we're closed, and employees never get their last paycheck because they have no idea who the owner is or where they get that paycheck. So we have seen in our 33 years all kinds of closings. This one I can see is the most elegant and the most integrity filled. We have given our customers four months to come in and say goodbye. We've given our staff the opportunity to make a really big, big, big paycheck each week, and that's quite wonderful. So, do you want to talk about the, the Tando? I think that's really interesting. Uh, the Tanda is the a tanda. very interesting way that we kind of figured out that the recession was um, pretty well behind us, not fully, but behind us. There is an underground system of people saving money that the kitchen people have started. So what happens is they'll get 10 people who work here and they'll agree that every week they will put in either $50 or $100, whatever the, the going rate is on the tanda. Then they will make up a little piece of paper with weeks 1 to 10 and each person gets to pick a week and the administrator goes around and collects the $100 from each person who's listed in this tanda and hands it off to the person whose week it is. So I've always been part of it, and my luck, I'm always week 10 or 9. Um, but what it does is it, it um, builds some camaraderie. It builds the expectation that you're going to stay in your job because you're going to have to be part of the tanda and pay up every single week. And it gives people a chance to have $1,000 in their pocket at once, as opposed to $100 a week, which they just might blow. So it's a, an extraordinary way of doing it. In the old days, it would go across kitchens when the, when the economy was good and people worked two, to, two jobs. So you could have 25, 30 guys in a tanda. Now it's usually very specific to a, a particular restaurant. So here we do it, um, and we're, we've done about four or five cycles since the, re, the recession has sort of tapered down. But your staff has to be stable for that to work. Exactly, and, and staff stability is an issue now everywhere. And why is that? Um, we just don't seem to find the labor force that is, um, is competent and critical thinking. I'm talking mostly front of the house. Um, we've been lucky that the back of the house has stayed the same for us for very many years. We did have two people leave since we announced our closing, but they got scared. 
I have told them not to be frightened, that I have jobs lined up for them. I have four places who want my staff, and now they get to choose where they want to work. Um, and as opposed to going out to look for a job because everybody wants my people. My people are good people. Um, and so stability is very, very challenging, front of the house especially. There are no, there's no busing staff that comes up now that is competent. And training is, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. And if you're having a, bus, a busser who's only mediocre training somebody new, you're going to have two mediocre bussers. <laughs> So because there's so many places, I mean, you think it's because the restaurant scene has just boomed so much? Um, part of it is how many restaurants are, have opened and are opening. I mean, everybody needs labor. Everybody needs labor. Um, somebody like Italy, Mario Batali's Italy, is going to suck up three, four, five hundred people. You know, they'll go through some, but they're sucking them up right away. Where is Boca going to get the staff for a 500-seat steakhouse? Um, so part of it is that. Number two is that the borders have closed up pretty tightly, and that used to be, people don't want to talk about it, but undocumented workers were the reason you had good busing. You had people who came in who needed to work, wanted to work, and had a work ethic that was with them. The other part is that the deportations are up dramatically in the last five years, and so there are less people um, who come into the door to say, I need a job. So what are you going to do after you? You're just going <laughs> to sink to your knees and praise the high heavens? Praise the high heavens. Well, there's two parts of that answer. You know, whatever everybody's most beautiful fantasy is about owning a restaurant, it's true. And I have been very blessed to have this restaurant for 22 years. The dark side is dark. Um, everything is a crisis. Um, the ice machine's not working, it's a crisis. A broken glass, did somebody cut themselves, it's a crisis. We're always in that state. Um, what I'm going to do is probably take a long time to rest and come back from that constant adrenaline push every single day. I can't explain to people how exhausting this is to deal with people all day long and to deal with the crises that happen every single day in some way or another. Now, we have a different environment in here. You can hear there's no loud music playing and we don't allow any cell phones. So in terms of the toll it takes on a nervous system in these other restaurants, they are really going to have a hard time when they try to retire. I, however, have a little more peace and quiet in my everyday surrounding here, which makes a difference. Um, I will do nothing for a while, and then because I have my new cookbook out, I will be doing book signings that I'm starting to book now, um, in, starting next March. But January, I'll be in the space to sell everything off. We're having a big yard sale, an indoor yard sale. So do you want some salt and pepper shakers? you want some mugs? You come and get them. Even though it's your salt and pepper shaker collection? It's not mine. It's the restaurant's. Oh, okay. And you'll be fine not to see it ever again. Ever again. <laughs> ever again. I collect people and memories, but stuff has no intrinsic value to me. I'm very Buddhist in that way. You know, celebrate impermanence. That's it. Gone. Bye-bye. <laughs> Let's talk about your book. Your first book of many, I'm sure. My first, my first and only book. Uh, so what is the... What, what did you set out to do? I set out to make people feel when they opened, when they touched the book, and when they opened the book that they were here, they were still here. It's very brand specific, it's very Ina specific, and it has only the recipes in there that I have done. When you go for a cookbook to a publisher, they always say, well, we need a uh, recipe consultant so we know to put in you know, all these muffins. You know what? I never made a muffin. Ain't going to put it in the book. 
this is what we do every day. Everything that you have loved in there, the heavenly hots and the baked French toast and the pasta frittata and things from my bakery that I did for many years. And this is the first reveal, the chocolate blobs that I made millions of during that time. Are, the recipe is in there as well. So the stories are memoir. How did I get from Brooklyn to breakfast? How did I get here? What happened along the way? I didn't bake my first cake until I was 37 years old. You know, how did this all come about? So the, the memoir stories are very sweet. Um, some people need a hanky when they sit and read it. That's okay with me. But I wanted very much to, um, to let Chicago know that Chicago has become my family and I'm leaving my recipes to them. There's still time to go to Ina's, though reservations are highly recommended. To get her book, Taste Memories, you can buy it at the restaurant, or there's a link for online orders at her site, breakfastqueen.com. You can also buy it at Women and Children First in Andersonville. Wherever you get it, she'll sign it for you at the restaurant. Daniel Belloud, of New York's Daniel and other restaurants, is probably the most acclaimed French chef in America, and he has a new cookbook out, Daniel, My French Cuisine. To celebrate it, he came to the Midwest for a dinner in October, in Milwaukee. Well, one of his oldest friends among chefs is Milwaukee native and restaurateur Paul Bartolotta, who was a chef in New York when Belloud first arrived there, and later his colleague at the Wynn in Vegas. Bartolotta also used to be chef of Chicago's Spiaggia. I was told this would be Balud's first visit to that quintessential Midwestern city, and I wanted to know what he expected to find there. Um, so you're coming to Milwaukee. Have you been to Milwaukee before? Uh, I'm uh, ashamed to say no. I have been, um, and I'm very excited. I've been talking about Milwaukee with Paul Bartolotta for a long time. And uh, I never had the chance to um, go there. Now, I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal that was about what you eat when you travel. Uh, and mostly that was about Asia, where you have a large number of restaurants. Do you ever get out in the yeah. Midwest? Uh, do you eat in diners and things like that and do a road trip? Yeah, of course. I mean, I uh, I um, I hope to go and get to some places who are really... Uh, you know, local dive. So I, I leave it to Paul and see what he's going to do uh, to his family there in Milwaukee. What do you recommend? Uh, well, custard is a big thing. Of course, it's a dairy state, so uh, Cobb's Custard. Um, I was trying to think of the place that has Sloppy Joe's and Custards. I, I can't think of the name offhand, but that's good. Uh, okay. And uh, Tavern Pizza, I guess. Thin Crust uh, Tavern Pizza. And and that's really uh, kind of typical uh, Midwest. The other thing about Milwaukee is it's uh, it's a very German city. I mean, much more than Chicago is to this day. So uh, it has some old old German restaurants, uh, taverns, and things like that. Kegels is one I like a lot. I know. I want to see. Uh, I want to see the. I mean, if there is still a German market, like you know, with the, all the smoked meat and all the different. Uh, 
specialty they have there that could be interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of good uh, products in Wisconsin. I'm sure cheese is the one that you probably have seen mm-hmm. the most of. Do you, do you have any? Do you buy things from Wisconsin? Do you have any cheeses that you like? Well, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We have um, we have cheese. We have the um, oh, the the fantastic oh god, what's the name? Uh, Carol uh, Carol Gingrich. You know the Upland Cheese Company. Yes, I've been there actually. <laughs> Yeah, I'm curious about this dinner. I mean, Paul Bartolotta is known obviously as a Italian food chef, uh, though I know he also worked in France. What uh, what's the dinner going to be like with the two of you? <laughs> well, the thing is, Dan, I don't care uh, if Bartolotta is Italian. I'm uh, doing. We're doing our cooking there. <laughs> okay. And uh, in the sense, Paul has been a longtime friend, and uh, we we have worked together in Vegas for six years. Uh, when I was at the Wynn, and we have been close friends for many, many years when he was in New York as a young chef and then became a chef at, uh, he was also um, at uh, San Domenico. And uh, and um, so, Paul, uh, in a way, it's uh, if I had to have an Italian brother, that'd be Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I guess this is a book tour for you. You have a new book, Daniel, My French Cuisine, What's that about? Yep. I mean, you've had several books. What's what's the particular direction of this one? Well, all the books before, I think I was trying to be approachable. I was trying to be, um, I mean, to certainly be more comfortable, uh, make people more comfortable with cooking and doing more of a home interpretation of maybe inspiration we had from the restaurant. Um, and... This book is more about Daniel and the restaurant Daniel, the cuisine we make. The uh, there's a lot of different. Essays. Have you seen the book yet? I haven't. No. Ah, and uh, there's uh, many essay on uh, on on different subject of seasoning of um, of cheese and truffle um, uh, and 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 there's about eighty to hundred recipe of restaurant Daniel today on on we have also bakers so we have a, a chapter on bread and and then there's uh 80 recipes so it's really from everything we have done in the last few years at Daniel uh it's not going back to 20 years but it happened to be the milestone uh, the 20 years happened to be a milestone right now so uh it's kind of a welcome addition to the celebration of the 20 years okay uh but also about my French cuisine, which is really, I am French deep inside, but I'm totally, I've been in New York longer than I've ever been in France. And, um, and I think, I, I think like a French chef, but I don't always cook like a French chef. And um, I think the, 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 the food are sometimes very French and sometimes more inspired by ingredients and by ethnicity we are surrounded by here in New York compared to maybe in France. Well, it's interesting. What... And... Yes. Oh, I was just going to say, so what What are some of the influences that you think have gotten into your food from New York that wouldn't have in France? <laughs> well, I think in France we're pretty well-versed with many things. I think, you know, the, the Spice Road, uh, when the Spice Road was drawn, 
uh, it end up in Europe, and part of it was in France as well. So uh, when we use uh, Indian spice in our cooking, it's already because in the 1800s they were already bringing spice to France. Have you picked up influences from the from having so many restaurants in Asia too? Uh, there's sometimes a little bit of that. It's true, but I think more. I think the the Asian influence come more from uh, being here in New York, and we have young chef from all over, um, young chef from all over the um, the world, and um, also we are exposed to a lot of Asian cuisine in New York, Asian ingredients, Asian suppliers, and so sometimes we do inter- interpret things in a, a more Asian approach, but uh, always with a balance where the wine had to play a big role into the dish, into into the dish or into enjoying the dish. So I always try to have a fine balance between um, being inspired by ingredients and how we use them. And I think maybe it's more the French, um, uh, the French in me in that is and we, uh, I will never make a dish too spicy. I will never never make a dish too acidic. I will never um, make a dish too contrasting for the wine. Uh, I think it's important to keep a balance where uh, the combination of both are in harmony. So that Sloppy Joe place with custard I couldn't remember the name of? It's Gillies. I'll have the links for that and lots of other things at skyfullofbacon.com. I also spoke with Paul Bartolotta around the same time, and he had a story to tell about what Blude was like when the two of them were first working in New York. I remember, it must have been 1995, 96. So I won my first Beard Award at Spiaggia in 94, um, and, um, and then subsequently my second one here in, uh, in Vegas at 09. And in, in about 95, 96, one of my young chefs in the kitchen, his name was James Fiala, you know, he wanted to work in New York. So I called Danielle one day and I said, Danielle, listen, I have this really great guy and he's from St. Louis and he's, and he's a goodness food and restaurant kid and, and, he, and he really wants to work in New York. And, and I thought, what better place than to work with you? And keep in mind that Danielle had opened his first restaurant, 93, 94, so it only been a couple of years open, and you know Danielle was still actively with a whisk in his hand, cooking every meal in the kitchen, expediting every night. And, <clears throat> and I remember calling Danielle, and uh, very funny. And I asked him, you know, Danielle, listen, do you have a place? And Danielle's like, uh, well, I'm very full right now, but uh, but he's a good guy. I said, Danielle, he's a great guy. And he goes, okay, okay, uh, let me see what I can do. I call you back. And, you know, three four days later, he calls me. Hey, Paul, yeah, I might have something coming up in uh, maybe two months with this work. And so, you know, I sat with James. I said, listen, you got to hang here until, and then you got to be ready to sort of like pick up a go when Danielle needs you. He said, yeah, no, whatever, whatever, whatever. Call Danielle back. Yeah, no problem. Very good. I'll let you know. Two weeks later, he calls me up. Hey, Paul, yeah. Because, you know, um, this guy, I said, yeah, James. Yeah, James. He said, he's fast. 
I said, yeah, yeah, he says, he goes, because you know New York, Paul, you were here before, you know New York. I said, Danielle, I know exactly, I got it, no problem. He goes, no, no, but you know, you know, pressure. I said, I got it, Danielle. This guy's rock solid, he's on my line at Spiaggi, he's amazing. I said, okay, very good. About a week later, I get a call from Danielle. Hey, Paul, you know, it's Danielle again. Hey, Danielle, uh, you know, just want you to know that, you know, sometimes, it's, you know, this guy, he's fast, right? <laughs> and I said, yes, Danielle, he's very fast. Because you know New York, Danielle, I, I, I would not, I would stake my reputation on this guy. I would not send it in, but he was not going to make it. And he's like, okay, because, uh, you know, you know New York. I said, I do. And he goes, okay, all right. He's good, he's good and he's fast. He said, he's good and he's fast. He said, okay, all right, I'll let you know. Click, hang on. You know, a couple weeks go by, I don't hear from Danielle. He calls me up. Hey, Paul, yeah. Now... I have this position coming up the next week. Can this guy be here next week? I said, I'm pretty sure I'll let you know in a few minutes, but yeah, I think so. And he goes, no problem for you. I said, no, I've been keeping a place for him. It means a lot to me that he gets to work with you. He's like, oh, he said, well, just, you know, he said, but you know, before you send him, Paul, you know, New York. I said, yeah, I know New York. And he goes, oh, you know, he said, you know, well, you know, there's a lot of pressure. I said, I, I understand the pressure, Danielle. And he goes, well, well, you know that sometimes I get kind of excited. And I said, well, I know you do, Danielle. I've known you a long time. And he goes, so if I get excited, he's going to be okay, right? And I said, he's fine, Danielle. Don't worry. He said, I explained to him, he's going to be fine. So I, I'm telling all these stories to Danielle, uh, to, to James. And he, you know, he, now James is like mortified. He's like nervous. He's like, oh, my God, am I going to be able to do it? And about three days into his apprenticeship, Danielle's having in the restaurant Berger and Bocuse and Maximen and all these top chefs from around the world or and Ducasse and they're all having dinner in this restaurant <clears throat> and you know at that time Danielle was younger and, and these were his all of his mentors and you know he isn't you know the same grown up that he is now and, and you know Danielle got a little excited that night and James held up under pressure and that night Danielle called me and he goes oh Paul he goes, I have to tell you. He said, oh, God, this and this guy, this guy, whatever. And, you know, and the only guy who stayed calm in the whole kitchen was your guy. <laughs> to tell me. He called me up to tell me, your guy, he was good. He was calm. And I said, that's good. I said, he's a very good guy, very good. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, very good guy. And since then, James has gone on to open a number of very successful restaurants down in St. Louis. Um, and um, super guy. And, and, and again, you know, when you're lucky enough to get in the chance to work with a guy like Daniel Ballou, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. You know, the guys that go in his kitchen now, um, n not that it's any less, but, you know, when I choose to send a chef to a place, I want to choose them when the chef is sort of on the rise or when the chef is, like, still in the kitchen sort of thing. And you know this very well. And then Danielle is one of those guys that, had, that has so much talent around him that even if he's not the day-to-day -day guy with the whisk in his hand, his standard and his imprint and his personality is so powerful and so intense that I, there are many chefs that are big names that I would not send young guys to go work in their kitchen. I would always send someone to Danielle's kitchen. I'll have more interviews in the second half. But first, please, if you like the show, 
or even if you don't, but you like the idea of independent food radio like this, there's just one little thing I ask you to do, and that's help get the word out. Tell people. Tweet it, talk about it on Facebook, and go to iTunes, subscribe, and give it a good rating. All that will encourage me to keep it going. Friends, here's a wonderful Christmas gift for anyone who smokes, because it says, Merry Christmas and Happy Smoking, 200 times. Street Food Around the World is an encyclopedic guide to, well, street food from all over. Written by a number of Chicagoans and edited by Dr. Bruce Craig, who's written about hot dogs and other foods of the people, and Colleen Taylor-Sen, who in particular is an expert on Indian cuisine. I spoke with Dr. Craig about it, starting with, so what makes a food street food? Well, uh, we do have a different definition in the book of what it is, and it's a uh food served on the street yeah. but it's all <laughs> but it's also food served in markets so if you go say to mexico and you there where there are many uh, markets people shopping inside are fundas and we regard those as street food also because they're it's basically food on the go on the while you're walking around um also we thought street food should be food trucks um, and other similar vehicles, and food trucks mean anything from the upscale ones that we see now to uh, roach coaches <laughs> that you see at factories all over the place. Um, and uh, we also looked at vending machines, which we regard as a kind of street food. There, it's out on the street, and it's so what it is is walking around food. And in America, it's what I mean, it's hot dogs, I suppose, first, and. Well, one one would think so, but yeah. now, but uh, once upon a time it was, but nowadays there's everything else. Um, and if you look at the food truck scene in con- in cities all across the country, you'll see things like uh, tacos, of course, are big uh, burritos now. Uh, so other Mexican preparations, and then on the streets of New York, all those food carts. It's not just hot dogs anymore. They yeah, serve falafel ev- and oh, everything, uh, not just falafel, but um, Lots of uh, skewers, lots of shawarma, and other related shish kebabs. There plenty of those, uh, even heroes. Yeah, that's what, that's what I saw as such a difference <clears throat> in New York between like 10 or 15 years ago where, where it was hot dogs and chestnuts, and now it is kebabs right. and falafel all over the place. Yeah. Now, in Chicago, the thing we saw kind of like that was Maxwell Street, which still had its sort of jewish slash blues reputation well after all the food turned mexican there right that that's true and uh, that would be represented before it was completely gentrified right and completely disappeared by hot two hot dog stands namely jim's original and the express and which which date back to the old days you know they date back to the 1920s actually right um to the old days when it was a jewish quarter and then although the owners of those weren't Jewish, right. <laughs> Macedonians, Greeks, oh, really? and then yeah. Greeks, and so they mixed up together. Uh, it's a mixed family, and uh, but they served. It's basically the same function as when you went down to Maxwell Street and found all the street vendors, right? And many of your listeners will have seen pictures of Maxwell Street and and know what it was: jam packed with people 
food all over the place, right? And carts and everything else for sale. All right, so now let's talk about the rest of the <laughs> world and just the huge variety of things out there. One thing that kind of surprises me is how many foods don't seem particularly street friendly. I mean, I noticed this years ago reading about like bel puri, hmm. which, you know, is an Indian snack that you kind of mix on the spot. It's like tossing a salad on the street. Right. And, you know, in your book, you've got like recipes for pork loin and things like that. Well, they are served on the street. They're, they're, I mean, there are a couple ways to do street food. One is um, most street food is in the lesser developed countries is made by people at home. So they're taking their recipes, and that's one of the attractions for tourism, by sure. the way. You're reading local food, and it's sourced locally. So this is the case in Africa, for example, and, and lots of Asia as well, and India. So um, there are locally sourced ingredients made by women, mostly women, almost entirely by women, uh, at home and either vended by women or men. And in the, in the uh, uh, developed countries, much of these are industrialized foods, so like a hot dog. Right or hamburger, they're they're sourced from a factory, but then made on the on the spot. So um, um, pork loin is one of those, actually. It's and you'll find it in um, stands in Scandinavia, for example, Denmark, where and I think that's where that recipe comes from. So you'll see those sandwiches uh, served that way. So I can say that sandwiches are a major street food, even though they may not be American sandwiches. There are other kinds. So that's why pork loin is in there. Okay. And then there's things like, uh, like I saw kanji in there and things like that. I mean, it, it seems hard to imagine walking down the street ho- holding hot porridge and eating it. But. Well, you don't have to walk in the street necessarily because a lot of these stands have uh, little seating areas. Okay. If you go to the, mar- the night markets in Asia, there are plenty of seating there. And it's street food because they're made by vendors in the open uh, right there. And you can just sit in and you'll eat. There are lots of soups. Just go to any place, um, you know, any of the ones in Shanghai or the most famous Xi'an, I guess, uh, with the twin market of uh, Chinese and uh, Muslims, hmm. right, from the Northwest. And there are two different kinds of food just across the street from each other. And people will sit there eating them, right, and you'll buy lots of soups, lots of stews, all sorts of wonderful stuff. So that's street food as well. All right, so, I mean, that kind of hints, I think, at why street food matters which is i mean it's obviously the most inexpensive kind of food business to go into and thus it's also a an entry point for for new cultures and new types of food and immigrants and things like that well uh street food is the entryway into the market uh for it it, it, say in north say in north america for immigrants it's it's cheaply cheap to, to source like a hot dog is you know the markup on a hot dog is very great, <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, that's that. So it is that way in uh, the developed countries for sure. And then a lot of people have moved up. Many don't. Many don't make it. Many really don't. Uh, you know, this is not just a pure success story, Horatio Alger story. It's not not. But but that's the way to get into the market. And it, there are many such stories in North America, the United States, in uh, places like Africa. It is might be the only income. For a family, the woman doing street food and cooking. So um, it's not just an entryway into the market. It is the market. Yeah, it is the food scene. It is the food scene. And furthermore, in places of wet, like West Africa, and um, for example, uh, half of a uh, people's uh, food, uh, total calorie intake, will come from street food. 
So it's a major source of nourishment for people. And that's because so it's mostly in cities and cities, you know, they'll draw the young man who doesn't have anybody to cook for him because he's there to work and make more money and send it back, that yeah. kind of thing. Yes, that's the case. But also there are a lot of just plain poor people. And um, the uh, the food is so cheap that uh, that they can afford it. In fact, this is the story of street food from the very beginning. It's food for poor folks. And now, of course, it's become all gentrified and chefized and right. everything else that, that we Americans, we rich people, do not, to everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not that we're rich, but relatively speaking. Relatively sure. Yeah, but there, and that's the much older pattern of um, of, of food service and food making, the one you find in Africa now. That's what Europe was like once upon a time. Okay. Well, let's go around the world and talk about some of some of the most interesting foods that you think, or just what's typical of areas, what you'll see in different places. Well, um, we go through these in the book. We didn't name all the street foods by any means because it's completely exhaustive and exhausting for readers to read. (laughs) You don't want to know every minor food. So we did the major ones. And in Latin America, you'll find um, wraps of various kinds. Well, well, enclosed, encased foods from empanadas, to um, 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 uh, tacos, for example, which is a wrap, basically. But an empanada is a totally enclosed one. And they come in different names, different styles, different stuff in them, depending on where you are. They're different on the coast of South America than they are in central Mexico. And even within a country, Mexico, for example, which uh, many Chicagoans will be familiar with, there are highly regional styles. And so the... uh, a taco you find in Guerrero, right, or Michoacan, is not going to be the same as it is elsewhere. So we do discuss this a, a bit and go through the different styles uh, that you'll find. Papusas, for example, which are from uh, El Salvador originally and now found all over Central America, are very popular. And um, you see them in the, in the new Maxwell Street Market. There's mm-hmm. a vendor doing papusas, and there's always a line there because they're interesting, uh, or arepas uh, from uh, Venezuela and the northern part of, um, of uh, L- South America are hugely popular, and there are arepa restaurants around. There's one in Oak Park, in fact, and they're quite good. But they're all basically the same kind of thing. Uh, a corn, and in some case, depends on the country you're in, a flour casing with a filling that's either fried or uh, could be baked, but often fried. Um, if you're in China, it's it's an unbelievably stunning, varied scene. There is everything. Everything is for sale in China in the, on the street and in markets. I mentioned the Xi'an market before, which is one of the most famous and one I've been to. And uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, but they're, they're all over the place. And the food varies regionally. We put that in the book. Some of the regional, the regional basic regional styles of China. You know, they're infinite. You can't get your mind around them, how many local ones there are. But uh, we did the basic regions, north, south, east, right, and talked about the kinds of street food you would find in, say, Shanghai as opposed to Beijing or um, or Shandong, places like that. And uh, so I can't even begin to go through them. But I will say that probably the ones Americans are most familiar with would be dumplings. Mm-hmm. And in the north, about for example, which are the steamed dumplings, which you find in, you know, in Chinatown here, which are great, fabulous, but they'll have different meats in them and different 
fillings like lamb, for example, or beef, as opposed to um, all the shumai that you'll find on the street in in um, Guangdong, you know, um, uh, Canton, Cantonese. So um, there, so we go through these as well, just so you know what the differences are. Um, major uh, Korea, we have a very good article by Mike Sula, by Mike Sula yeah, right. which is very good because he's been there. And I've been there a few times, and but Mike knows it better <laughs> than I do. So, and he, he wrote a really good article. Um, and uh, uh, the the street food there is just varied and stunning. One thing you notice in a lot of places like Southeast Asia and others is that um, people eat a lot of insects. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I know that the readers will like this. Um, uh, insects are really good. They're eaten all over the world, not by, and they are by us. Only we just don't know it because yeah. <laughs> it's in our food. Uh, but fried insects and uh, um, toasted insects are just a feature of cuisines all over the place and street food everywhere. For people who are reading this and wanting to travel, go try them. They're, they're really well, you know, good. it's funny. I mentioned the idea of going to Vietnam to my son not too long ago, and his first thought was, you know, I want to get a picture of me eating a stick with a bunch of crickets on it yeah and and you know instagram it <laughs> that was the point of the trip for him well yeah um you can do that in mexico yeah in fact and, you can get them in the maxwell street market when they right. when they come on up but um grasshoppers chapulinas are really good they're when they're toasted up great um but in korea um silkworm are um Hugely popular, but don't eat them raw. They're awful raw. I made the mistake of eating them. But uh, uh-huh. when they're steamed up, they're great. They taste like veal. Huh. They're fabulous. <laughs> so, I'm not sure that makes it better to think of them tasting like veal. They do. Well, they're, and also they're children's food. The Koreans huh. will tell you that we, we that, that uh, silkworms are for children because they're so nutritious. And stuff. Uh. But anyway, eats them. So anyway, there are these you know, great numbers of them. In Africa, many stews. And um, based on um, manioc, which is, of course, imported from the New World back in the 16th century. And, which is uh, a, a starchy It's a starchy vegetable. A lot of starchy foods, beans and greens. In fact, sort of sounds like soul food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 there are lots of relations. But there are a lot of those because it is a more substantial food meant for to keep people going because it's, again, a large part of their diet. Okay. Uh, let's see anywhere else like Eastern Europe say uh, Eastern Europe you'll find the thing about Europe is they have been invaded by American corporations right, yeah. so <laughs> are, and so is China so you know I was surprised going to China about 20 years ago um, for the first time I went and um, seeing a, um, a pizza hut yeah and KFC, I hear, is big there. Yeah. Well, KFC, I can understand because it's... Uh, that it, actually it's resembles chicken. Chinese food. Slightly. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> or American Chinese food. But uh, but Pizza Hut, because Chinese are, don't eat cheese. It's not part of their cultural inventory. But they were it was jammed, and they were eating it like mad. And now, it's, of course, it's just everywhere. And the Chinese have taken up our diets, yeah. unfortunately. But uh, uh, that's, that's kind of interesting. So Eastern Europe, and what, Europe, you'll find a lot of... Uh, not just American chains, but local chains which emulate American ones. And they're all over the place. But there are in, lots of indigenous foods. Um, in Hungary, for example, langos, which is a, a fried dough, which is fabulous, absolutely great. Or um, in, in Russia, lots of sausages, and uh, especially on holidays, dumplings of various kinds. Palmeni, we have recipes in the book for it. 
and 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 many other things, uh, similar kinds of dumplings. Same in Poland, where you can expect to find pierogi. <laughs> How could <Yeah>. you not? <laughs> and uh, and um, lots of breads. So um, Europe has a vibrant um, street food scene um, all over the place. One interesting thing is in Denmark, the ma- the major street food nowadays is called pulser, and those are red hots. Ah. And they're, they're sausages, which are dyed red. Yeah. Because <laughs> they have to be, they're everywhere. And uh, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. All right. So in Chicago, if someone wanted to try street food, we know that we live in a place that kind of doesn't really have street food. Right. But if you wanted to try things, like you talked about uh, Bao and stuff like that. So in Chinatown. Yeah. I'd go to the dim sum restaurants. You know, uh, there, and there are many good dim sum, but that's about as close as you can get on Unless there's a street festival, sure, in which there's there's food, and there's a Korean fest once a year with a lot of Korean dishes on the street, and there are lots of other ones like this. You know, the ethnic festivals in which they'll do street food. Uh, we do have food trucks now in Chicago. They've been permitted, thank goodness, and uh, you're seeing many more ethnic foods. I know one food truck which serves uh, Iraqi food, which is just great. Uh, Oh, it's it's so beautifully, fragrantly flavored stuff. It's great. Hmm. And what's the name of that one? Too? Oh, I've forgotten the name of it. It's uh, their restaurant is up on Western. It they have a restaurant. Okay, it's really great. And um, and there's even um, Pleasant House Bakery, right. which makes those great meat pies. They have a truck. So a lot of people have mm-hmm. trucks now and are serving various ethnic dishes as well as um, chef created dishes uh, one of my former students is runs one um and um so um th- 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 anyway the scene has become highly varied and you're going to find food trucks all over the place of course this taste of chicago which is a zoo yeah and i don't know if anybody wants to go there it's just it's too much for me to go to nowadays but that's where you're going to find our try street foods by the way there are a couple of other places there's an indonesian street food restaurant um, which sort of replicates Indonesian street food. It's on Milwaukee, um, about 1900. Um, I, again, I've forgotten the name. Rickshaw Republic. Rickshaw Republic. It's on Lincoln. It's on Lincoln. You're right. Sorry, yeah. not Milwaukee, Lincoln. But it's it's not exactly Indonesian street food. It's it's pretty good. It's kind of yeah. interesting. Um, and uh, there's some little Filipino places and and others which will serve things that, like you'll find on the streets. The essence of street food is not only the foods themselves, but the empowerment of the street food vendor. Open a stand and aim to be better than the next guy, and you might just launch an empire. After talking to Bruce, I stopped for lunch just a few blocks away at Big Guy's Sausage Stand, a Berwyn hot dog and sausage shop whose main owner, Brendan O'Connor, embodies the aspirations of the street food vendor. He also makes some really freaking good sausages. I always liked hot dogs and sausages. When I was a kid, uh, my buddy Paul and I, for a few years, ran a, a hot dog stand in front of his house once a year. It was an annual thing. He lived in a Frank on the 400 block of Forest Avenue in Oak Park, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright block. Yes. All the studios on there. So once a year, they would offer a um, house, an open house, for one of his neighbors or his house sometimes. And we would just put a hot dog stand out there. We'd sell coffee, hot dogs, pop. And we called it Right Lloyd Franks. And it, for, you know, once a year we would strike gold that day. I mean, they were lined up for 
10 hours a day line that wrapped around the block and uh, we had the charcoal grill out there and making char dogs and they were they, by the time they got to us they were really hungry they were willing to spend three dollars on a hot dog and so uh, yeah we we cleaned up back then for you know when you're 15 16 you know a few hundred bucks is a ton of money so but you did something else for a while I was in sales uh, I, I went I went to Columbia got a journalism degree um, got out of there uh, I was a young single father at the time I couldn't really um, support my my kid on the starting journalism salary and go to a small market or any of that kind of thing so I just ended up in sales and I did pretty well um, and then uh, was our company downsized I got a severance and I put that money plus some more money that I raised and well immediately just looking for a location open a restaurant that's what I wanted to do I grew up going to this place when it was a parkies and um, it would be dilapidated and uh, closed down for about 10 years and uh, I live in the neighborhood still so I wanted to turn this back into a hot dog stand with a little uh, more contemporary cuisine you know along with it but still good and non pretentious stuff so you just used the word cuisine with hot dog cuisine cuisine yeah I did well because it's uh, hot dog obviously is a big seller for us but I mean we sell a lot more sausage and it's all homemade and that's what we really showcase here okay so yeah tell me about that what uh, what got you making your own sausage well it was it's like it was meant to happen this place had a grinder uh, an old old grinder that works great um in the building when we were looking at it and I thought that was kind of like a sign that we were here so we just started developing recipes at first we were purchasing about you know three quarters of our sausage making just a couple and then we just developed more and more recipes and switched the menu to reflect the homemade sausages okay mm-hmm. what was the first what were the first ones you were making uh, we were doing chicken sausage because there was no good chicken sausage to buy. So that was the first thing we had to do. We knew we had to sell chicken sausage to appeal to that chicken demographic. And uh, and so we started making those because we couldn't find we couldn't find anyone that made a good one that wasn't dried out or you know weird. Everyone's put apple in their chicken sausage. I don't know. Yeah. So we we wanted a really good Italian uh, chicken sausage, and we had to make it ourselves to get that. And then just steamrolled from there. Exactly, yeah. And then we're doing special sausages. So uh, right now it's the blue and orange sausage. Um, for the bears. For the bears. Uh, for November, right now we're making turducken sausage. Uh, that's really good. That's probably our mo- most favorite special of the fans. Um, it's a uh, obviously turkey, duck, chicken, ground up, seasoned lightly. Um, because we put a lot of flavor on top of it. We've got uh, breadless sage stuffing uh, and uh, homemade cranberry sauce, and then we use all the carcasses and we make our uh, turducken gravy out of that. You know, the hot link, we just wanted it. We just wanted a, a good, smoky, uh, south side of Chicago tasting hot link, and we just and kept on adding more red pepper flake till we got there. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I think you got there. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the things like the specialty sausages that we run once a month, those um, are just kind of brainchilds of mine. I, I try and get, we have a really straightforward menu. There's no fancy names. It's, it's a cheddar brat or it's this and that. And, um, but for those, I get a little more clever and I try and play with the season or the, you know, a 
theme. So that's where the orange and blue comes in Turducken for uh, uh, Thanksgiving last year. We did uh, El Rudolfo, we called it, and that was a um, uh, Rudolph, uh, Rudolph, a uh, reindeer sausage uh, made with a mole sauce, and um, it, it turned out real good. Not sure if you want to run it again, but uh, so that's that's kind of where we come up with those. So we kind of come up with an idea and then try and make it work. You get any moms who are freaked out that you were serving Rudolph? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, I think we got more people laughing about it and sharing it on Facebook than people who were like, oh no, I. You know, I protest that they eat reindeer, you know, so. But, yeah, I mean, we've grown our menu a lot. We originally were just sausage and pork chops, and uh, uh, and now we make homemade Italian beef. We grind our burger meat fresh every day. And we actually, burgers are number one seller, surprising yeah. enough. Obviously, we sell more sausage as a whole, yeah. but, um, you know, you threw that burger on it, it became like you know, every other order, so. Good burgers are rarer than they should be. They, they are. And fresh ground meat is really not that hard to do, but nobody does it. And it yeah. makes such a difference when you're hand packing uh, patties to order. Um, you know, we just take a little, a few precautions. We grind it fresh. We season the meat um, in whole chunks. Uh, that way it's just ground into the meat. We're not manhandling it. Make really light pack six ounce balls. And then we, we kind of just give them a smash before we uh, cook them. So you're not, I, I, you know, manhandling meat I think is the biggest sin against uh, burger meat. So, because you just get the, te the texture, you get sort of that meatloafy texture. A little meatloafy, you kind of push the fat out a little bit, it shrinks up, you know. Um, yeah, just a nice loose burger meat, falls apart, you know, right away. So th that's what we're going for. This being so close to where I am and me having some nostalgia with it, it just kind of spoke to me and I think the menu was developed based on the fact that it was built to be a hot dog stand and um, I didn't want to just sell hot dogs I wanted to do something that I could um, really have a hand in making rather than just reheating Vienna products so that's why you know we went with the sausage. Big Guy's Sausage Stand is at 7021 Roosevelt Road in Berwyn. You're too late for the turducken, but he's serving this year's version of Rudolph right now. That's it for this time. Thanks for coming back. And thanks to my guests, Ina Pinkney, Daniel Balloon, Paul Bartolota, Dr. Bruce Craig, who knows his hot dogs, and Brandon O'Connor. There will be links at skyfullofbacon.com for the books we talked about, and most of the places we mentioned in the show, although the Iraqi food truck is no more, at least I can't find it. Again, I'd appreciate anything you do to spread the word. And if you're cooking this holiday season, there's six previous episodes. Good time to catch up on past interviews with people like Michael Ruhlman, Nancy the Ham Lady Newsom, Dave Barron of Next, Matthias Murgis of You Show and A10, Paul McGee of Three Dots and a Dash, and many others. You can find them all at skyfullofbacon.com or on iTunes. Music is by Kevin McLeod. This was Episode 7. <laughs>